Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. This morning, I have about 25 more minutes, so this should be fun this morning. It's in the book of Daniel. If you've got the Bible, I'm going to have some on the screen, but we're going to be in the next five weeks studying the book of Daniel. It's this idea of culture and character, where those two things meet. I was having lunch yesterday with some friends of mine, and they have three kids. Their oldest is just starting kindergarten this week, and the mom was a little afraid because it's a big change. Now her oldest is going to go to school at 7 a.m., stay till 3.20 a.m., and she's just like, I don't know if I'm ready for this, you know? And it got to me thinking about kind of our church calendar, our calendar in the suburbs and the flower plexes set around really August, not January, and all the changes that are about to take place. It got me thinking about what happened when my parents would bring me to new spaces and places in my life. Uh, My dad and I, Great relationship. My family is just not a touchy-feely family. We don't sit down and have family meals or family chats as much. We don't hold hands and sing kumbaya together. That's just not how I was raised. And, and this is typified in when my dad dropped me off for college the first time. Chicago. I'm a long ways away from home, right? When I, he drove me to Chicago, dropped me off, he put my stuff on the front little entranceway at Moody Bible Institute, stuck out his hand and said, see you at Christmas, and walked away, right? Really... <laughs> moved me with all his compassion. (laughs) But what was really interesting as I was thinking about it, my dad used to say a phrase to me every time there was a big cultural change in my life. When I went from elementary school to middle school, middle school to high school, high school to college, he would always say the same phrase to me growing up and it stuck with me. And he would say, remember who you are and remember where you came from. And so we didn't have a whole lot of heart-to-hearts, but that phrase stuck out to me as we walked in and out of different cultures. And that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. That's what we see in Daniel. It's really a battle for what culture is, because here's the deal. You're going to walk in and out of several different cultures every day. You're going to be in and out of several different cultures as you navigate through life, because kindergarten culture is different than preschool culture, and high school culture is way different than sixth grade culture. You're going to navigate in and out. And we all have different cultures that we deal with. We're going to define culture this series as culture is pretty simply uh, the shared attitudes, values, and practices of the people around you and different spaces you walk into those change. So I came from a culture in this community and I moved to Chicago and I, I didn't really do the church thing very well in high school and I went to the capital of Jesusdom 101 and it was different than what it was used to. I had long hair that was actually not allowed at Moody. I had to cut that bad boy. Um, I did not own a pair of pleated pants. That's just fine. They were really, really in style there. And it was a bunch of people that really said the word blessed a lot and liked to hug each other. And those are great things. That is not how I was raised. My dad shook my hand and said, see you at Christmas. All right? I remember a couple of years ago, and this is kind of a staple for Christian culture. We, we say we're family, so shake a hand or give somebody a hug. I was at a conference a couple of years ago, and it's nine in the morning. It's the first session, and the worship leader gets up there, and he takes a break, and he says, we're family in Jesus. Hug the person next to you. 
So this grown man next to me turns and puts his arm out, and I said, not a chance. I'll think I'll give you a high five, right? <laughs> he looked defeated. It's a different culture than the one I'm used to, and we all deal with that each and every day, whether your kids are growing up, whether you're starting a new job, whether you have a new friend group, whether you're getting into a small group. We dance in and out of cultures every single day. Here's the hard part, and here's why I think Daniel's good. It's good. What happens when the cultures that we find ourselves in are different from the culture that we value. When the set of traditions and practices and principles and attitudes, what happens when the cultures we walk into have a different version of good than the things we value? That's Daniel. That's hard. And let me say something. As Christians, I don't think culture is becoming more likable or agreeable to the culture of Jesus. And so what we're going to do over the next five weeks is talk about what it looks like to live out the culture of Jesus in a community that necessarily doesn't value it as much. We're going to talk about what it looks like to live out godly character in a culture that goes against godly character at times, which seems like it. And so today what we're going to do is talk about what character is, what godly character is. And all my life as I've grown up in all the different schools and all the different leadership courses and all the different seminars and conferences, I've heard character defined one way. Character is who you are when no one is watching. One-on-one. That's how we define character. I think that's a good description of character. Here's my problem. I don't think it paints a full picture of what character truly is. I don't think it does in Daniel 1 either, and that's where we're going to be. So this morning, I want to look at Daniel 1, and as we see his story in the first eight or nine verses, I want to talk about what Christian character is all about and what happens when it finds some conflict with the culture that he's found himself in. But before we do that, we're going to do what we do on Sunday mornings at Crossroads. We have two goals. We're going to say it every single Sunday morning you show up. The first one is we want to know God, and that means that we open the scriptures and learn about who God is. Because I have this deep conviction that I can always know more about God because he's bigger than me. And that just means he's worthy of worship. If my God wasn't bigger than what I can comprehend, he wouldn't be worthy of worship. And what that means for you is if you've heard this story once, twice, three times, too many times, I still believe that God will teach you something through it because he's bigger than us. And every time we revisit stories that maybe we've told before, we see a different aspect of or dive deeper into the character of the God that we serve. We want to know God not just as we learn about him, but also as we experience his influence. And so hopefully this leads to life change and we celebrate that as we worship together. So we're going to take a couple seconds and just pray like we do every Sunday morning. And I ask you to pray for a couple seconds silently. Just that that the Holy Spirit might speak to you, might teach you, might shape your spirit this morning because God is here and God is active. And this is not um, a, a, a situation where you just sit back and listen. We engage in the scriptures together. And then two, I'm gonna ask that you pray for me, that I say things that are good and right and, you know, don't embarrass the kingdom. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that you give us just the grace once again to gather in this space. I never wanna take that for granted. Because life changes so quickly and so many things can get in the way, but you've allowed us the grace just to be here and to refocus on your goodness and to refocus on your role in our lives and to refocus on godly character. So I'm thankful. I pray that as we gather today, um, that as we interact with your scripture, that your Holy Spirit does a work in our spirit, that it, it, it inspires joy as we learn about who you are, that it convicts where we need conviction, that we are edified and we leave this place wanting to live into the promises of Jesus more. 
So take a couple seconds and just, if you're willing, say a quiet prayer that the Spirit might do a work in your spirit this morning. I also ask that you just say a prayer for me, that the words that I use might be used by God, might be edifying and uplifting. They might accurately paint the picture of the character of God that we're trying to know and worship. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said... Amen. We're in it together. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to start reading. I'll read the first verse and then we'll kind of get into some context. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem and laid it under siege. I don't know if you know the story of the Bible that well. I'm not going to try to get into too much history, even though I know that I want to. But let me catch up on where we are in the story of the Old Testament. So if you're following along, you got Adam, Eve, they started this whole thing. Sin entered the world, the world started to break down, because that's what sin does, it breaks God's good design. Fast forward 12 chapters later in Genesis, and God found a man, not because the man was good, but because God was. He says, I'm going to pick you, not because of what you did, but because my goodness will overflow onto the canvas of my creation. And he said, Abram, I'm going to pick you. He said, I'm going to use you and grow you into a people, and that people will ultimately produce Jesus, which will save the world from the brokenness that's caused by their sin. And the story of the Old Testament is the story of God's people. He said in Exodus to him, he said, I'm going to make you my people, and we're going to have a contract. You're going to live into my ways to show other people around the world it's worth it. And when you do that, you'll flourish. And when you don't, you won't. Last summer... We studied the book of Judges, and it really was all about this up and down relationship of his people's pursuit of him. And when they followed God, they flourished. And when they didn't follow God, God allowed them to feel the weight of their decisions. And they were taken over by the people they tried to be just like. And the Old Testament is a story of the up and down relationships with the Israelites' pursuit of God. That sounds familiar to me in my life. And this is kind of towards the back end of the Old Testament. And and we're going to dive into one of the most sad moments in the story of the people of Israel. At this point, they're a fractured people. They've been taken over time and time again. You had the big three kings and Solomon and and, and David. And then if you go back into Saul, after Solomon, it all broke down. And there was a civil war. And you had the country itself split into two kingdoms, northern and southern. A couple hundred years before this, the southern kingdom got taken over by Assyria, and we have never heard from them again. And then this is the lonely northern kingdom of Judah, and they're the only ones left. They're the only ones left, and they're holding on to this promise that God gave them, that this is your land, that have given you this land, and they're about to be taken over by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It says he advanced against Jerusalem and laid it under siege. So you got to understand When these people are taken over or when they're attacked, they're not just saying, oh, this is a bad Tuesday. They want our land. They really feel like they're being attacked by people who don't know their God. It's an attack on all the promises of hope and future that God gave them to their ancestors and their ancestors and their ancestors. 
And so at this point, they're about to be overtaken again. And this is a very sad moment in the history of the Jewish people. It says, in that third year, the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem. And one really interesting note is we have themes of the scripture, right? Themes that pop up because these writers wrote and said, hey, I'm going to connect some dots for you. And it says Babylon that word is weightier than just a city in the scriptures. In verse three, in, I'm sorry, in verse two, it says it's the Hebrew from the land of, of Shinar. And so Babylon was in that land. And, and when we see that word, it likens to a kind of place. It's the same word that was used in Genesis 11 when it talks about the story of the Tower of Babel. And every Jewish person would know that these two things are, are, are synonymous or, or close together. If you don't know the story of Babylon, essentially the story of, I mean, of of Babel, the story of Babel was when men got together and said, we can build something like God built. We can build something as resplendent as the creator created. And they said, watch us build this tower that reaches to the heavens because we can do what he did. That was not a good idea. And so if you read the story throughout, God mixed up their languages and it caused more division. It's a story of people thinking they could be God. And when we see Babylon, it likens back to that story. And then in the end, in Revelation, there's conflict between the lamb, between Jesus and the final battle and the city of Babylon. Babylon always stood for those things juxtaposed to God's good. So when Daniel says from Babylon, he's really laying the pipework for this isn't just another town. This isn't just another king. This isn't just another village. This isn't just another power struggle. This is an identity conflict between the people of God and people not of God. When Augustine wrote about it, He talked about two cities, and he says, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, the heavenly by the love of God. So so when we dive into this conversation, there's more going on than just one city attacking another city. And it goes on in verse 2. Now the Lord delivered King Jehoiakim of Judah into his power, Nebuchadnezzar's power, along with some of the vessels of the temple of God. He brought them into the land of Shinar, to the temple of his God and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. So it gets worse. Not only are you attacked, not only have you seen the other half of your comrades or countries or people, more than that actually, not being spoken of again, but he, he attacks your God and takes your God's stuff and puts it in his God's temple. <laughs> okay, that was huge. What was dark just gets darker. Because when they did that, in that culture, that wasn't a me, my culture, but an us, we culture. One stood for the whole. It's like when we watch the Olympics and we watch Michael Phelps lose a race like that happened. We watched Michael Phelps lose a race. You didn't say Phelps lost, you said America lost. So when their people were attacked and when they lost and when their artifacts from their temple was put in the temple of the other gods, literally what they're seeing and feeling there is not only did we lose, but our God lost to their gods. They're not only losing their land, but they're losing the hope of their salvation from the God that they ascribed to. They think God is less powerful than their God now. It's a horrible punch in the gut. Because if you're Israel, your identity's focused around your God, and they weep. The psalmist says in Psalm 137, he starts by saying, By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, Jerusalem, when we remembered the Holy Land. There's a prophet who sits on a hill in Jeremiah and he, in, in, the, in the Lamentations, and he just writes about how sad he is as he watches people being carted away. That's the context of what we enter into. And they're going to a place and they're going to a culture that didn't respect their values, they didn't respect their God, they didn't respect their attitudes. 
And they're charged with keeping the character of the God who picked them. That's when you see Daniel. Look at verse 3. It says in verse 3, The king commanded this Nebuchadnezzar, Aspenaz, who was in charge of court officials, to choose some of the Israelites who were royal and noble descent. Young men in whom there was no physical defect, who were handsome, well-versed in all kinds of wisdom, well-educated and having keen insight and who are capable of entering into the royal service to teach them the literature and the language of Babylon. Literally what's happening here, what he does is he says, I'm going to go in there. This is about 605 BC. He says, I'm going to take the best and the brightest you have, and I'm going to make them mine. This is actually started by Alexander the Great. It's written about in a bunch of old historical documents. They'd go into a country and they'd say, give me your prettiest, give me your strongest, give me your most intelligent. I'm going to take them and I'm going to send them to my school so they learn our ways. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Newsies. It is phenomenal. If you haven't, go home. Do it now. It's your spiritual act of worship. It's a great movie about a newspaper riot in the 1900s. There's a guy named Jack Kelly. Jack Kelly is the biggest and the strongest and the fastest and has the most, you know, kind of charm of all the newspaper salesmen. And they started a strike, and he's the leader of the strike. And so what the big newspaper guys do is they take Jack Kelly, the leader of the strike, they put him in prison, and they pay him off, they promise him something, and they watch him march towards the picket line and sell the papers that he started the strike against. It breaks the back of those people who want to see their ways and values remembered. And this is what they would do. They would take the best and the brightest, and they would say, now you're going to be one of ours. You're going to forget who you were and know who you are now. It, it makes the darkness even worse if you're a Jew. So I went to Chicago, and it's a long ways away. I'd never lived outside of the South before. I have family all throughout the Midwest, love the Midwest, don't love to live there, but love the Midwest. And um, I moved to Chicago, and I realized quickly that the Southern culture is different than the Midwest culture. If you guys knew that or not, I don't want to offend any Midwest people here, but I just got used to things here. I got used to Tex-Mex and I got used to barbecue. And so when we go up there and they're like, here's a really great meal, it's a casserole. I had a hard time because the things that I found comforting, they didn't find comfort in. When pepper is considered spicy, I'm talking black pepper. I had a hard time living life in that context. I was dropped into a place in time that I feel like I didn't belong. And even the things that I thought were comforting to me weren't there anymore. There's Daniel and his friends dropped off in the middle of this place. They were the best and the brightest, and now they don't know where they are. It's scary. And what you see in the next four verses, and really verse four all the way through verse seven, what you see is Nebuchadnezzar's plan to change their character, step by step. And so what I want to do very quickly is run through kind of the four things that he does, because I think we see some similarities in our culture today. So he says in verse 4, he says he wants to teach them the literature and the language of the Babylonians. The first thing we see that he does is he actually isolates them from the people that he knows. So the first thing we see that Nebuchadnezzar does is he's trying to change these good Hebrew boys to good Babylonian boys as he steals them from their land. It's isolationism 101. I'm going to take you away from all the people teaching you the principles that you think you were so I can teach you new ones. I, I study sometimes kind of different cult followings because I like them, and I can't explain why. I think it's fascinating that people can start a cult just by using, by using words that people follow. This was the 50th year anniversary of the Manson family happenings, and we're not going to talk about that because that's pretty dark for a Sunday morning. But I got into it a little bit, and there's a documentary 
on Netflix about the Rajanish community we've talked about before a few years ago, but it's a whole cult that started in India and then bought 100,000 acres in Oregon in the mid-80s. 100,000 acres because of this one guru's teaching, and I don't know why people followed him, but he said, if you want to follow me, move to our land in Oregon. Get away from your family and friends and teachings and move to us and live with us. The first thing we see happen when people want to change the character of somebody else is usually you isolate them from the character you don't want them to be anymore. And then the second thing you do is you indoctrinate. Verse 4, you want to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians, which was exhaustive, by the way. It says it took three years to teach all these kids these things. And by the way, just so you know, Daniel's probably 15, maybe 14 years old. So so they show up and he says, hey, you're going to learn three or four different languages that we speak. You're going to learn all about the moon and its phases. They had 70 and 80 and 100 tablets worth of astronomical signs and and different literature on the phases of the moon and visions. And, and, and they just taught these kids all of these zodiac symbols and, and languages and math and sciences of things they valued for three years. It was like he was up to his neck and stuff that he didn't want to learn. So the first thing they do is they take you away from what you know to be true. And then they tell you what they think should be true. They isolate and they indoctrinate. Here's something I find fascinating because some people, if you're thinking like I am, you're thinking, well, don't Christians do something like that? No. I don't think the Bible ever tells us to isolate ourselves. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. I don't think it ever tells us not to learn other stuff. If you look at Daniel and his friends, they actually at the end of this thing were the most wise and they learned the most stuff. I think the Bible tells us to learn and study our culture. I think it tells us to press in to our culture that maybe we have some conflict with because they need the hope of Jesus. It's what happens in Acts chapter 17, if you want to take a brief little detour, when Paul is walking around Athens, he's walking around a community that doesn't know or value the culture of Jesus, and he says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he studies the culture to know where he can use that culture to paint a picture of how Jesus is good. And that's what we're called to do. Because there are redeeming narratives in our culture. And our job as Christians is to say, you see this small redemption narrative? Let me tell you how it points to the bigger one that you don't know is unfolding all around you. So as followers of Jesus, we're not called to isolate. We're called to press in. We're called to learn. We're called to study our culture. So the Rajanish people, for example, went to hours and hours long meditations. They weren't allowed to read other books outside of this one guy's teachings. And every night he would sit on this, on this chair and he would teach for hours and you sat there and you listened to it. And over time, you began to believe that his truth was true. So Nebuchadnezzar takes these kids, he isolates them, he indoctrinates them, and then look at verse five. So the king assigned them a daily ration from his royal delicacies and from the wine he himself drank. And what you begin to see, that phrase might be... Um, It might not sound like a threat to you, but if you're a Jewish boy, it did. Because there were specific laws around how you could eat and what you could eat. Um, In Leviticus chapter 11, actually, uh, God is talking to Aaron and Moses. He's giving them the law, and he says, Say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. And the rest of that chapter, chapter really tells them, stay away from these animals and eat these animals. Partly because God knew that the disease lived with certain animals if they didn't cook them right. There was a lot of wisdom and practicality into kosher foods. 
And the good Jewish boys and girls knew that they couldn't guarantee the kosherness of their food if it came from a non-kosher people. And so by eating that food, they were compromising their value system and the ceremonial law that God gave them. Also, Daniel didn't do it because, or didn't want to, because according to Jewish law, you couldn't eat food that was sacrificed to other idols. And there was no guarantee these weren't sacrificed to their gods. So by taking the food and drink, you're compromising a bit of who God called you to be. And here's the deal, that had to be really hard because I'm sure the food and the drink was fantastic. It came from the king. He was trying to pull them into his side to change their character from that that reflected a Hebrew God to that that reflected his God. But slowly, you began to find when you're isolated and when you're indoctrinated, you begin to compromise the values that used to hold true. The Rajanish people, they gathered together under the guise of, of love and peace. And over time, they were a pretty free love community. We'll leave it at that. And they started a group in Oregon next to a bunch of ranchers. You know who's the opposite of the free love community in the mid-80s? Oregon ranchers. And so there was some some natural conflict with the local people. And instead of handling this well, because they had elections and they wanted to take over the local government, actually what the Rajanese people devolved into was far away from their message of peace and love. In the mid-80s, they were responsible for the largest bioterror attack in the history of the United States. They sprayed salmonella over a bunch of food at a bunch of restaurants and 750 people got sick. So they couldn't go and vote the next day. It got so bad that they actually had plots to kill people in the government, like the attorney general for Oregon who was bringing a case against them. They moved far away from the life they said they valued. Compromise leads to more compromise, leads to more compromise. And it might look like this is just a piece of meat, but to the Israelites, they knew that it wasn't who they were called to be. And so we have indoctrination, we have compromise, and then finally, we see at the end of this, in verse 7, it says, but the overseer of the court officials renamed them. It's a big deal. It says he renamed them. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, Haniah the name Shadrach, Mishael. He named Meshach, Nazariah. He named Abednego. We've talked about names before, but just to boil it down, in the Hebrew culture, names meant more than they do here, where we open up a name book and we read until one feels tingly inside. <laughs> names meant identity. Names meant authority. It's why I could name my daughter, because I am her authority, whether she wants to admit it or not, you know? And so when we talk about naming, it goes back to how God created the world. In Genesis 1, God said, I'm going to create this system of good. And at the top of that system, the the beings who are going to have dominion, rule, authority, power over everything, and their job is to show everything how much I love and how well I love. He said to Adam and Eve, I'm going to give you that responsibility. And because I give that to you, you know what your first job is? Name all the animals. Name them. God didn't do that because that was man's job as they had influence, authority, and power over all the animals. So when the guard comes in and says, we're going to give you a new name, it meant way more than just we're going to have a nickname for you to call you something. What we begin to see as we study through Daniel is he's not just changing their character. He's after their identity. The name Daniel literally meant God is my judge. The name Belshazzar means protect his life. So the name probably was Bel Belshazzar, which literally means the God Bel protect his life. It was a cry to a Hebrew, it was a cry to a Babylon God, not a Hebrew God. He's beginning to change the very nature of who they are. And then when you think about it, I think change is slow. I think character change is slow. 
So over time, think about if you're called a different name. The first week, it's awkward. The first month, it's awkward. The first year, it gets more normative. And over the course of time, you start believing that's who you really are. We see it. My kid is a year old. Next Sunday, we're all going to gather here and celebrate her birth. Thank you very much. And um, we, uh, we started, you know, she's eating some foods, and we try to introduce new foods to her. And uh, I like most foods, but there's some that I still, as I've grown up, I was a picky, picky eater as a kid. Picky, picky eater. I would take like jars of salsa and I would dip my chip in there and I only wanted the juice, not the actual tomatoes because that's gross, right? Um, I hated onions, but I loved onion rings because I would pick off the friedness. I am weird. Now I've grown up and I love most foods. There's only a couple I can't do. I love fresh green beans. Love them. I think they're great. Throw a little sliced garlic on there, do some herbs things to them, put them in some butter. We got a winner. Uh, I still think canned green beans smell like my nightmares from childhood. I do. I can smell like the tin and the processedness. And I, I'm a stubborn child. You got to understand this was back in the day when we made one thing for the whole family. And my dad grew up on a farm and he would say, you eat what's on your plate or you don't eat at all. And then it evolved into you eat what's on your plate or you don't get up from the table. So I remember several times there'd be green beans and I would sit there and not eat them. I'd pretend to eat them and like spit them back on my napkin. And they're like, that doesn't count. And, and the family would get up and leave the table. And the lights would be off in the dining room. It would be dark. And I'm still sitting in there at the table because I had three green beans left, right? I soon found out that my parents are more stubborn than me. Where'd they get it from, you know? So I sat there in it. I dislike canned green beans. So my daughter had those last week, I think, for the first time. I smelled them. I had a little thing happened in my throat. And... Um, I said out loud to my daughter, those are disgusting. And my wife said, don't say that to her. I said, I'm just trying to be a good dad and protect her from harm. <laughs> and, and she said, if you say that to her, she'll start to believe it. I was like, well, it's true. I didn't see the disconnect here, you know, but it's true. If you say every time that she sees a green bean, that's disgusting. She's going to grow up thinking green beans are disgusting. It's the same way with the people and their names. If they were named after the Hebrew God they followed, his values, his culture, his good, his attitude. If that changes and they're called a new name over time, that'll change their characteristics because they're changing their identity. And that's what our conversation today is about. <laughs> our conversation moves pretty quickly when we understand character from not just being about what you do, but being about who you are. And Daniel got that. So look at verse 8 with me. It's the most important verse in this chapter, he says in verse 8, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with royal delicacies or the wine. He asked the overseers and the court officials for permission not to defile himself. Let me tell you something. It starts by saying um, that I don't want to defile myself. This was about way more than food. One commentator said it really well. He said the same pattern employed by Nebuchadnezzar. To draw Daniel away from the Lord is employed all around us today. Isolationism from God's influence to produce holiness in our lives. Indoctrination with the worldly ways of thinking. Compromise with the riches of this world. Confusion about our real identity and purpose for life. When it said that Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself, this is not a conversation about food. This is a conversation about identity. And Daniel is holding on to his identity through what he's allowed to eat, what he will and will not eat. When it says he set his mind there, literally in the Hebrew, as he set his heart there. And we just spent all summer really talking about what the heart is in Proverbs. 
It's not just what you feel, but it's what you think, it's what you feel, it's what you do, it's what you desire. So this is something he said in advance, not in the moment. He said, I will not forget my heritage. Because up to this point, it's like he's been overwhelmed by three years of all this other heritage. And he says, I'm not going to give in everything because I'm losing my identity of the God that I love that gives me purpose. And so he's saying, I will not defile myself by eating your food. It's a bigger deal than just the Daniel fast or not the Daniel fast. One commentator, Wearsby, said, it's been well said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence, that's superstition, but obeying in spite of consequences. And Daniel chooses in this moment to obey. He chooses to say, I'm going to hold on to who I am because God defines who we are and I'm not going to lose my identity. To me, a really interesting part of this passage, if you look at verse 12, he says, please test your servants for 10 days, providing us with some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Uh, the Hebrew there, when it says vegetables, is interesting. It's a rare word that they use. And, and one of the things that it means is literally, instead of just like carrots, it means grown from the ground. And I think what Daniel's trying to do is he writes this book years and years later. I think Daniel's trying to juxtapose the ways of the Babylonian culture versus the ways of the Hebrew culture. I think he's juxtaposing, I will not be dependent on Nebuchadnezzar for my sustenance. I will depend on God. I think it's a conversation, but ultimately what he depends on. So in the Hebrew culture, you, you could eat meat, certain kinds. You could eat fish, certain kinds. He says, no. He says, I'm going to depend on what God grows from his creation for my sustenance. And I think he's doing that to say, hey, I'm going to depend on this God that I follow that gives my people purpose, promise, and identity. And so he says, I'm only going to eat vegetables and I'm only going to drink water because I trust my God and I'm not going to give up my identity. It's kind of like, and we have these <laughs> things that we do in our culture. I, we have these summer meals here. Um, and it's really funny. I... I go back and forth on, on the whole idea of saying grace before meals. I think it's a really good thing, but I think sometimes in our culture, we forget why we do it. So we had these summer meals out here, and you could watch people want to eat, but we hadn't said grace yet, so they'd be like lined up, and they're not willing to take the food, touch the food, taste the food, because it might be poison, because we haven't blessed it yet, you know? And, and, and so we'd wait, and then somebody would say grace, and there's like this, this banner of freedom lifted off us, because we're in a church, and if we're going to say grace before a meal, it's got to be here, you know? And so here's what I think about that. I think that if you say grace, that's great. If you don't, that's fine too. The purpose of saying grace, though, we can't forget, which is every time we say grace, my buddy used to have a phrase that he said, he used to say, come Lord Jesus, be our guest to this food, mass be blessed, amen. He said that before every meal I remember it when he used to spend the night. And the point there, it's not just re repetition or superstition. Every time we sit and we say grace before meal, it's a reminder that our dependence isn't on Tom Thumb or Whole Foods or your income. It's a reminder that our dependence for our today and our tomorrow is in a God who provides. That's why we do it. So if you do it, do it like that. If you don't, it's just superstition. Daniel's picking that. Saying, I will be reminded that the God is my provider, that God is, gives me my identity. And what we see as it builds into this moment, when Daniel stands up and says no, is that character isn't just about what you do. Character is an extension of your identity. That's fundamentally what it boils down to. One commentator, Ferguson, said, the way you think about God, ourselves, others, the world, determines the way we live. <laughs> I do believe that your character is what you do when no one's looking. My question beyond that is, but why do you do what you do when no one's looking? And the why behind the what in that conversation is because you know where you come from, 
that molds and shapes your actions. One of my favorite books is a book called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. He's an economist and he draws sometimes crazy conclusions, but a lot of times really good ones. And I'm just gonna read a section from his book. He, he did a study on kind of causes behind performance, on what causes certain people to behave certain ways. And, and he actually correlates, if you will, people's mindset to their output. So he says it like this, two Dutch researchers did a study in which they had groups of students answer 42 fairly demanding questions from the board game Trivial Pursuit. Half were asked to take five minutes beforehand to think about what it would mean to be a professor and write down everything that came to mind. Those students got 55.6% of the questions right. The other half of the students were asked to first sit and think about soccer hooligans. They ended up getting 42.6% of the Trivial Pursuit questions right. The professor group didn't know more than the soccer hooligan group. They weren't smarter and they weren't more focused or more serious. They were simply in a smart frame of mind, clearly associating themselves with the idea of something smart. Like a professor made it a lot easier in that stressful instant after a trivia question was asked to blow out the right answer. The difference between 55% and 42%, it should be pointed out, is enormous. That can be the difference between passing and failing. I think what he's saying there is that what we think about ourselves matters into how we act. How you identify yourself leans into or defines your character. And we see it in Daniel. He's not just fighting for food. He's not just fighting for action. He's remembering that his identity is not found as a slave, is not found in his new name, is not found in his new diet. His identity is found in God, and he's not giving that up. And that will shape his action. What I love about this is, as it goes on, if you know the rest of the story, he positions to some of the guards, and he says, hey, will you please, look at verse 13, please test your servants for 10 days by providing us with some vegetables to eat and water to drink, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who are coming and who are eating the royal delicacies and deal with us in light of what you see. We're gonna talk about conflict and culture um, in three weeks in Daniel 3, but what I love here real quick is just how he goes about doing it. Because if we find ourselves in conflict with culture because our identity isn't espoused by the culture that we live in, you have two options. <laughs> You can act in a way that draws attention to you, and you can act in a way that draws attention to God. And I love how Daniel acted here. He acted in a way that still respected where he was, but pointed to a different way that's better. I, I remember this story from a pastor friend of mine. When I first heard it, I was really excited about it. And then over time, it's kind of worn on me. It's probably five or six years later. He was, this is a while ago, probably 10, 15 years ago. He was on a plane and they were watching a movie. And this is back when you had one screen for every four seats. This wasn't when you had an iPad at your, at your seat. And so he said they put on this movie, and I think they put on the movie Chicago. I mean, it had to be PG-13 or below, I believe. And, you know, it was edited out for all the content because it's going on these screens on this airplane. He did not agree with that choice of movie. And so at that moment when his culture was in conflict, his culture of Jesus was in conflict with the culture that he found himself in, he had a choice to make. He chose, and he said this triumphantly, I got up out of my chair, I walked to the flight attendant space in the plane, and I ripped the VHS out from the VHS player, and I went and sat down. And they said, and people applauded. I said, I'm sure they did, you know? My point there is um, kind of goes in, flies in the face of what Daniel did. I think there's a way that we respond when we have conflict with culture. One commentator said it well, I like how he put it. He said he was, Daniel was, able as a result to be faithful to the Lord in a way that would show the Lord's glory, not in a way that would leave people staring at Daniel himself. There's a world of difference between those two reactions. 
So if you know your identity and your identity is in the spouse and the culture that you find yourself in, the way we respond either points to God or points to us. May we be people that points to God in that. And it doesn't mean there's not time for aggravated conflict. Sometimes we're going to get there. But I think that Daniel does a good job of finding a balance between the two. And if you know the rest of our story, essentially where this goes is they go on this 10-day diet and they return at the end of 10 days and they're bigger, faster, stronger, wiser than the other people. The king himself comes to look at him. In the end of our chapter, if you look at verse 21, he says, in every matter of wisdom and insight the king asked about them, he found them to be 10 times better than any of the magicians and astrologers that were in his entire empire. Now Daniel lived until the year of the first, until the first year of Cyrus the king. So he says that in the end, they were faithful to God and God blessed them. And what I love about how this chapter ends, by the way, is one, I think it tells us two things, that the ways of God are good and they're meant for our good. In the Hebrew narrative, it doesn't have to come out and say that specifically to not imply that, and it does. That when God says live a certain way, he doesn't do it so you can jump over the hoop to prove your love to God. He does it because he says, I created and I know what really good is, so trust me. And so they were bigger, faster, stronger, wiser, better because they lived into God's rhythms for how to live. Maybe a little less red meat and a lot less wine. That's an okay thing to do sometimes. And two, I think what it shows and what I love, at the end when it says in that phrase, now Daniel lived until the first year of Cyrus the king. That was about 70 years later. 70 years later, he outlasted all the people he was with and he outlasted all the kings that had power over him. We're four, I think, kings later at this point. So in verse one, it starts off in this really negative, I think God has abandoned us. And at the end of this thing, we see the faithfulness and the longevity of the influence of God. It's a really cool bookend to our narrative. To go back to the Rajanish people, um, so they bought 100,000 acres in Oregon and they didn't go so well after they tried to kill some people and they disbanded. And in 1996, that land actually, about 65,000 acres of it was donated to Young Life and they run camps there now for Jesus, you know? So it's this idea that over time, if we live in God's ways, this helps encourage us that he's faithful when it doesn't seem like he is. But what it comes down to at the end of the day, what it comes down to when we talk about culture and character, what it comes down to is if we're going to have a conversation about our culture, if we're going to have a conversation about our character in the middle of our culture that might not espouse the things of Jesus, we have to begin not with what we do, but who we are. Because if we begin any other place, it paints an incomplete picture of what our character should be that will only fail you. Because we're a people that really likes labels, you know? I'm a millennial, so I have a label to show people that I don't like labels, all right? And, and when we talk about different labels, we fall into these patterns of identifying ourselves as certain labels, whether you identify yourself as a husband or a father or a mother or a wife or uh, uh, an earner, whether you define yourself by how much money you have or how little money you have, whether you define yourself by an American, a Republican, or a Democrat. We have these, we have these, these leanings to define ourselves by these labels. And I would say that as followers of Jesus, the label we define ourselves as is bigger than all of those. It's a Christian. It's somebody who's defined by what Jesus did for them, and it supersedes all the other ones. Because if we believe that, know that, and press into the identity that we find in Jesus, our character will follow. I mean, honestly, guys, I, you know, as a pastor of a church, it's hard for me not to find my identity in the size of this space and in how will I do in my 45 minutes on Sunday morning, you know? Good week, bad week. Did I, did I earn my keep this week? Am I valued this week? Am I not? My value is not found in those things because my identity is not in those things. 
I can have a good week, I can have a bad week. My identity doesn't change because I am a child of God. It's really difficult in our culture. (laughs) So what I want to do as we end today, I just want to read to you guys what God says about who you are. I'm going to read from a couple different verses in the scriptures because the scriptures paint the picture of who God says we are the most clearly. It says in Philippians 3.20, your citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, in him and Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Ephesians 2, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves. This is the gift of God, not by works so that you can't boast, but you are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared before you in advance to do, Romans 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin. 2 Corinthians, we are in Christ. We are a new creation. The old is past. New things have come. We are God's ambassador and through us he's making his appeal. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Character is more than what you do. It starts with who you are. May we be a people in the good days, in the bad days, that presses in, understanding, grasps our identity in Jesus and watches our character follow from that. Looking back at my relationship with my dad, I know I might not have the most deep conversations, but I don't think I realized the wisdom in the small phrase, remember who you are and remember where you came from. I think it's a beautiful thing to know that I am Jesus's son and daughter, that I am a child of God. I find hope through and in Christ in my job is to show other people that hope as well. May my character, as I understand my identity in God, tell the story of the hope of Jesus to those around me. Let me pray for us.